Bye, Govan, and welcome to the Tolkien War Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and in this video, I want to give a good example of Tolkien's world building and how he really does a lot of it kind of by creating your own inferences rather than directly telling you stuff. Because Isengard and the Tower of Orthanc are really good examples of how Tolkien tells us a few things about a place, but leaves so much up to the imagination and gives it this mystique that turns it into something a little more than the sum of its parts. So I'm going to get into the history of Isengard, its origins, how it gets used, and kind of highlight some of the lack of knowledge we have about it as well, and also touch on some really cool stuff about it that only comes up in the Unfinished Tales. So let's get started. First thing to note is that the name Isengard, which is the basically an Old English or Rohirrim equivalent to Angranost is basically Iron Citadel, is effectively what it means. The Tower of Orthanc itself is, according to the appendices, actually kind of, or maybe it's actually not in the appendices, maybe it's in the main text, I forget, but it actually has a double meaning. In Elvish, it means Mount Fang, because the tower looks like teeth, kind of. But in the tongue of the Rohirrim, it means cunning mind, which is also very fitting, although probably accidental, because Saruman is the one who lives there, and Saruman is the cunning person. That's like kind of part of his name, actually. Is He's cunning, he's skillful with his hands, he's, you know, that's part of who Saruman is. And at the book notes actually that the coincidence of this double meaning of the name is probably accidental but it sure is an interesting accident at any rate the tower itself and really the the area it's in was set up and built by the men of Numenor when they came from the west now it's not exactly clear when this was done because it doesn't tell us if this was a purely post-exile thing, or if this was before the fall of Numenor, and, you know, it was built, and then the men who came with Elendil and Isildur and Arian just appropriated it after it was already there, built by earlier Numenorians. That's not really 100% clear, but we know that Numenorians built it. And the interesting thing about it is the Tower of Orthanc itself is really the only thing that's completely built. The rest of it is a ring of hills which is basically natural, but which has been kind of adapted a little bit because a gate has been carved into that so that there's basically a wall of mountain around this bowl which has a gate carved into it or a passage carved into it where the gate is. And that's the only way in. The Tower of Orthanc was built by the Numenorians, but the interesting thing it tells us in the story is that it doesn't look like it's built by hands. It looks like just four spikes coming out of the ground joined together without any masonry or, or work by men involved. Which, by itself, is one of the things that makes it a little bit of a mysterious place. It's like this unearthly, almost alien-type structure, and by alien I don't mean like extraterrestrial necessarily, but like something that's not known to, you know, the men of the age that we have to deal with. And it's interesting in that way because we know that it was built by men, but it gives us this insight into the Numenorians. Their technology was so advanced that they did things that 
by the time we read the Lord of the Rings, the period that they're in, it's like, how did they even do this? It seems like giants must have done it. And, you know, who knows? So the place itself is interesting for a number of reasons. And it's interesting in terms of just its name. It's interesting in terms of the structure and how it's put together. And just there's a lot of things to it that give rise to already we can start thinking of how did this thing come to be and why is it it's just interesting the other interesting thing to note about it is its strategic location the main reason you would want to have this place here is because it does guard the gap of rohan which is an interesting choice because with the men of numenor and you know the kingdoms of gondor and arnor gondor used to stretch over all of what we know of as rohan and the area was just known as kalinarthron kalinarthron nardon sorry i've got a little bit of a congestion and my pronunciation stinks right now uh but the reason for guarding the gap is a little bit less clear because between the gap of rohan and the north kingdom of arnor there weren't really a whole lot of significant enemies. I mean, there's the Dunlendings, but they're kind of small and probably not very significant, and at the time, it's not even clear they would have been enemies of the kingdom of Gondor anyway. Uh, Nevertheless, it is a very strategic location. So that's a little bit of background on where it is, what it's called, its significance in terms of just purely that kind of thing. Now let's turn to the history. Now, whenever the tower itself was built, whenever the exiles of Numenor came to Middle-earth, they brought the Palantiri, and one of those was placed in the Tower of Orthanc. Now, of course, the kings of Gondor would have controlled it, and they would have been the ones that had access to it, or else some delegated, you know, official who would have had charge of the tower. The interesting thing about the tower, and Isengard in general, is that for most of its history, we know basically nothing about it. Only in like the mid to late 3rd century, not 3rd century, 3rd age of Middle-earth, do we really start to get any information about it at all? And the first major thing that we know about it is that at a certain point, Gondor begins to wane. It's had wars with Easterlings, and it's had a plague that wiped out a lot of its population. And because of a lot of these different things, it starts to have a decreased population, especially in the region of what we will later know of as Rohan, which includes Isengard. And as a result of that, Isengard basically becomes abandoned. Gondor simply just does not have the manpower to, you know, keep this relatively distant outpost. It's kind of shrinking and maintaining its control over the areas closer to Minas Tirith, Minas Ithil, which itself eventually falls, you know, the, the coast along the south to defend against the Corsairs, this kind of thing. So for thousands of years, Isengard is effectively a non-entity as far as the history that we get in the appendices. We know nothing about it, which in and of itself is also interesting. It goes back to my point about why did they put it there? It doesn't seem like it had a very significant purpose for, you know, thousands of years. Nevertheless, there it is. So for thousands of years, it you know, there's nothing of significance going on, and eventually the population of Gondor declines to the point where Isengard is abandoned. After Isengard was abandoned, at some point, Gondor gets into another war with, 
you know, people from the east, and in this particular instance, the steward, because the kings have died out, is named Kirion, and he basically sends word to the Eotheod in the north, which will later become the people of Rohan, and asks for their aid. And Aeorl, leading the Eotheod from the north, comes and wheel, wins the battle of Celebrant. I think it was the Celebrant. I may be missing, messing up my names. But he wins a, a battle. They defeat their enemies. And as a reward, partially, for helping them, Kyrian and Aeorl enter into basically a permanent alliance. And Kyrian says, Look, y'all can settle in this land up here that we're no longer using and do what you want with it and we'll be in a permanent state of alliance. That's how the Kingdom of Rohan gets started. Meanwhile, Isengard is still just kind of sitting over there doing nothing, but eventually the reason this becomes important is because the Dunlendings eventually will end up in a really bad fight with the Rohirrim during the days of Helm Hammerhand. And the reason Helm is important, of course, is because Helm's Deep is named after him. It gets that name after there's this really bad winter where the Dunlendings basically have the Rohirrim cornered and they're holed up in Helm's Deep and the winter is really bad and so lots of people are dying from, you know, cold, disease, famine, just, I mean, you name it. And after this point, Dunlendings at some point are in Isengard and, and have control of it, although they really don't apparently do a whole lot with it because they... Seemingly after the days of the kings, the Palantir in the tower was forgotten because none of that ever comes up in any of the history until much later. So the Dunlendings have the Rohirrim on the run, but then of course when the winter ends, the Rohirrim finally come out and they can use their cavalry to their advantage and they defeat the Dunlendings. And then that ends up you know, driving them out of Rohan and even of Isengard as well. This all happens in the 2700s of the Third Age, and after Rohan repels the Dunlendings and empties Isengard of the Dunlendings who had taken it in 2759, Baron, the steward of Gondor, hands the keys over to Saruman basically as a way of, hey, look, you're on our side. You're, you know, supposed to be helping us, and we can't do anything with this tower anyway. If you keep it, it'll at least keep the invaders out, and that helps everybody. So that's when Saruman finally comes to reside at Isengard, and this, of course, is where the history really starts to pick up, because prior to this, seemingly there was really no importance to it. But now that Saruman has it, we know what happens next. Saruman, of course, initially takes possession of the Tower of Orthanc in name uh, as a warden of the Steward of Gondor. He is not taking it as his own. He will eventually take it as his own much later at the death of Turgon, who is the steward of Gondor and the father of Ecthelion II, and he is the father of Denethor II. So when Denethor's grandfather dies in 2953, Saruman basically takes possession and ownership. He says, all right, this is mine. And, you know, nobody does anything about this. And Tolkien actually has some notes on this, I think, in the Unfinished Tales, and he basically says, you know, the other members of the White Council would have disapproved of this, of course, but they technically couldn't do anything about it, and none of them were, you know, part of like a conglomerate. They all were free to act as they saw fit individually, so that's why nothing was done about it at the time. Uh, so, you know, the interesting little tidbit there, 
But at any rate, Saruman basically claims ownership of Isengard and the tower in 2953. And bear in mind, that's like 65 years before the War of the Ring starts. Presumably by this point, Saruman has already fallen to corruption and therefore is, you know, on the lookout for the ring itself on his own part. And by this point may also have started his orc breeding program, not really clear. One thing that we do know, because we know this from Gandalf's story to the Council of Elrond, is that even when he comes to visit Isengard, there are still men guarding the gates. Which is interesting, because it shows that even when Saruman reaches the point of full-blown corruption, Gandalf comes and there's men standing guard. Which means Saruman has men on his side who presumably are in on the secret that there's a whole bunch of orcs being procreated in and around the vicinity of the, you know, Isengard. So he doesn't just have orcs and Dunlendings in his service. It was Dunlendings. You'd think Gandalf would have kind of noted that and been like, that's that's something to worry about. That's a red flag. Um, so, but he doesn't. And so presumably these are men who are not Dunlendings. So he presumably has some corrupt men in his service as well as orcs and the Dunlendings who he kind of allies with in order to get rid of Rohan at some point. Now, of course, most of the rest of the history of Isengard we know because it all takes place within the story of the Lord of the Rings. There's not a whole lot to it. Saruman, obviously, is using it as a fortress and a base of operations. He, you know, will use it to fight Rohan because he now has this huge army of Urukai that he's been breeding in pits and, you know, will eventually only lose because the Ents come and the Ents... Unlike probably just about any army of men the Free Peoples could have put up, can actually basically just destroy stone and break through the walls and come in. Although even the Ents are not capable of really doing any damage to the Tower of Orthanc. Another interesting point. The Ents, when they are in the, you know, the Ring of Isengard, many of them in their anger do try to break the tower in some form or fashion, but they're just beating themselves against it. And Merry or Pippin, I think it's Merry who tells the story to Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, basically says, you know, they're basically hurling themselves against this thing, but they're not even chipping the rock. And Treebeard basically has to calm them down and say, hey, stop. We're not doing any good. You're just hurting yourselves. Give it a rest. He can't get out. We're fine. So the Ents can't even damage the Tower of Orthanc, which is interesting because Barry and Pippin will also tell us that they can basically just crush stone like it's, you know, chalk or something. I mean, it's, he describes it as the process of a tree demolishing stone over the course of hundreds of years condensed down into seconds. So the Ents are immensely powerful, and yet they still can't do anything to the Tower. What is that tower made of? It makes you wonder. Uh, so that's, you know, that's basically the end of the history of Isengard that we know of from the main story. Of course, the Ents do destroy it. Saruman is eventually let out, and Aragorn, as the king of Gondor, reclaims the ownership of the tower and establishes, you know, his own presence there. And the Palantir itself... Uh, that when he already has possession of, and because all the other Palantiri are basically gone, he keeps that one in Minas Tirith, so that doesn't return to the Tower of Orthanc, but, you know, it's still a very strategic location and whatnot. 
Now, the interesting bit about the Unfinished Tales that I mentioned I was going to get into actually ties in right here, because it is precisely with Aragorn's assumption of the kingship of Gondor that leads to this interesting information. After Aragorn becomes king and starts to set his kingdom in order, one of the things that happens is that Gimli comes along and he helps repair the gates of Minas Tirith. But that's not the only cool thing that Gimli does. In the Unfinished Tales, what we find out is that they visit Isengard, and Gimli, being an expert in stonework and such things, manages to find a hidden closet in the tower. Now, the hidden closet, that's another interesting thing. Is this We don't know for sure. Is this a, something that Saruman devised, or is this part of the original structure devised by the Numenorians? Not really made clear. But Gimli discovers this hidden closet, and in it are two very significant items. One is an item called the Elendilmir, which is basically the, not a crown, but a circlet with a star-like gem in it, which would have been worn by Isildur and previously, you know, his ancestors as well. And the Elendilmir was basically kind of like the, the sig- symbol of kingship in Gondor. And it had been lost because Isildur was killed, and a substitute had been made. A lot of this stuff gets talked about in the Unfinished Tales. I don't want to get into all that detail in this video. The other interesting thing that was found was the chain with which Isildur would have worn the ring around his own neck before he was killed and drowned in the river. Now, this is fascinating, and the implications, of course, are Saruman was searching in the region of the Anduin where Isildur was killed and had found either his bones or his where his remains would have been or who knows what exactly, but found these two significant objects, kept them for himself, never revealed it to anybody else, and just continued searching for the ring. Now, of course, he only would have... He obviously already would have been corrupted by that point because... A, if he hadn't been corrupt, why wouldn't he be like, hey, steward of Gondor, I found this really cool thing that I'm pretty sure is actually yours. I found it in the Anduin. How about that? It must be where Isildur died. The other thing, of course, is why would he be searching in the region of the Anduin for the ring if he had told everybody, hey, that ring's already gone uh, down Anduin into the ocean, and therefore you don't have to worry about that. And meanwhile, he's surreptitiously, surreptitiously searching in that area for, presumably, the ring. So clearly, Saruman was already corrupt by the time he started doing that. But it's really interesting because there's this major artifact of the Kingdom of Gondor hidden away in Isengard, which is only discovered after Aragorn brings Gimli there, who knows enough about stonework to find a hidden closet. So again, this goes back to that question. Was that a Numenorean thing? Was that a Saruman thing? It could easily have been Saruman that put it there. Saruman is cunning with his hands, and he probably can do a lot of his own stuff. He's also a Maya associated with Aule, so probably very good at doing that sort of thing. And so it kind of makes sense that he would have made the closet himself for that purpose. Regardless, see how all these little things add up? All these little details that we get that we don't get full details of? There's a hidden closet. Who made it? We don't know. Saruman? Numenorians? Unclear. When was it made exactly? Unclear. What was it doing there for 2,000 years? Unclear. I mean, there's just so many things about the tower and the ring of Isengard as a whole that we don't know. 
But we get some detailed descriptions of it, we get mentions of it in the history, and yet there's this huge gap of knowledge that we know nothing about when it comes to Isengard. Why was it built? And yet, you know, it shows up never in the history until basically Rohan shows up and then the Dunlendings take over and then it, you know, passes hands several times. Up until that point, it was built, but nothing happened there, seemingly. At least nothing very significant. So it's really fascinating that this thing, this area that becomes so strategically significant in the War of the Ring has effectively no history to it. We just know it was built and that it was taken over by Saruman and there's this giant span of time where nothing happens. And we know things about its construction that it's really solid and that it doesn't look like it's constructed. But apart from that, we don't know anything about it. And so there's just all these weird little tidbits of knowledge we get that don't fill in any significant details that allow us to wonder, you know, what? why is it there? What was its purpose? What was it doing for 2,000 years or however long before it became deserted? You know, there's just so many things about the Isengard that are a great example of Tolkien giving you just little hints of things that don't really tell you anything terribly specific, but increase the interestingness of his world by potentially orders of magnitude when you take them all together. Because there's this, you know, I mean, towers and things like that, defensible places, that's all, you know, totally to be expected. What's not necessarily to be expected is a defensible place that never comes up in any point in the histories, even though Tolkien gives us detailed annals of things that went on for most of Gondor's history. We know about all of its wars, its plagues, all these different things, and yet Isengard never pops up. And so you you have to ask the question, why did they build it? As seemingly there was no purpose to it, and yet... Here it is, and so there it is for Saruman to take over. You could always argue, of course, that it was just kind of a tower ex machina. You know, Saruman needed to have a tower for the way that the narrative needed to go for Tolkien's purposes, and therefore he put it there and had to give it some kind of history. But it couldn't have been that, you know, I mean, we know Tolkien well enough to know that that's probably... That might have been why it ended up there, but if he had had time, there would have been a lot more story to it. And that's the interesting thing. Tolkien was always developing more and more story to go with the world he created. And it would be really fascinating to know what story he would have come up with for Isengard had he had the time. Alas, that is one thing we'll never get, but it's interesting to wonder about it ourselves. And that's why I think it's a really interesting topic to think about. So what about you? Do you think there's anything else about Isengard that's really mysterious, worth thinking about, and, you know, just other things that may come up about it that stand out to you as being particularly interesting? If so, leave them in the comments and we can discuss. So if you like the video, please do give it a thumbs up and share it around. Please also subscribe to the channel and click the bell icon to make sure you get all the notifications for all my videos. You can follow me on Twitter at JRRTLore for some occasional Tolkien-related trivia questions. And you can find me on Odyssey and Rumble and get podcast versions of this as well. And if you'd like to support me, I'm also on Patreon. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namariye.